are you ready to dive into a world of captivating conversations and insightful perspectives with Leap Listens? I'm Sarah and I'm joined by my co-host Roger. Hello. And together we'll be your guides through our third podcast series. Leap Listens is proudly presented by Leap Create, a dynamic people communications agency that partners with organizations to communicate their unique culture and values. Check us out at leapcreate.co.uk. So join us as we explore the latest trends, share success stories and uncover the secrets of effective communications in the workplace in just 15 minutes or maybe a little bit more. Today we're joined by Ellie Long, inclusive hiring and early career leader, winner of the Great British Businesswoman of the Year Awards and finalist of the Early Careers Professional of the Year at the Target Job Awards. Ellie is hugely passionate about early careers and inspiring the next generation and we're very lucky to be speaking with her today. Welcome to the podcast Ellie. Hi, thank you. So Ellie, tell us about you and what inspired you to pursue a career in early careers. Well, I guess I could probably sit here and waffle for about half an hour about me. But <laughs> yeah, so I currently work at Rolls Royce. I look after um, all of our global campaigns and attraction, of which early careers is the biggest one, kind of biggest chunk of my world. I kind of fell into early careers a bit. My interest, I guess, in HR and D&I and talent as a space kind of stemmed from my dissertation that was around why females weren't progressing and this kind of concept around a glass ceiling, but actually it more being kind of layers and what was it that there's kind of a multitude of factors as to why females might not progress through an organisation traditionally kind of in certain sectors. So that's where it kind of stemmed from. But my passion is about creating opportunities for people, no matter what their background or their kind of social standing or their upbringing. And in my view, social mobility is one of the biggest challenges that faces us as a society, as us as a kind of business um, individuals. And I guess that, yeah, the difference now that is, that is coming out between those that have and those that have not, and the impact COVID has had on that is just kind of becoming so much more acute. And there's so much evidence around the inequalities across education and healthcare. And I think there's so many opportunities in that space. I personally believe if we can crack social mobility, we can crack all other aspects of DNI. And it was through Sue Stott's kind of starting that passion, um, my HR career, that everything kind of became a perfect storm and I ended up in the world of early careers that I'm, that I'm in today. Great. So you mentioned COVID and the pandemic. What, what are you seeing then coming out of the back of that around social mobility? Well, I guess the impact of the pandemic has been so much more profound on those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. The, you look at the data, the rates that they've been in school, um, the, their exam results, predicted grades, the impact on their mental health. It's impacted everyone, but it has just impacted that that group um, and particularly that generation so much more. And so what you start to see now when I talk to my kind of colleagues at universities and through some of the partnerships that we work with is students are struggling so much more when they go into education. They're struggling to feel like they have the right skills or the right behaviours that organisations are looking for. The motivation might not be as easy to articulate. That opportunity to access employers, um, work experience, whatever that might look like. A lot of these students took on kind of additional care and responsibilities. They might not have kind of continued. So whilst it's difficult... Anyway, for, for students in these groups to sometimes do the Duke of Edinburgh's and have the work experience and the part-time jobs and all that great stuff that they would have on their CV, it's just become even harder. And to then having the confidence to be able to articulate that, put themselves forward for opportunities and, and kind of progress has, has just become so much more difficult. And so I feel there's the responsibilities as us as employers to try and support that and bridge that gap. Yeah, it's definitely made a massive impact, hasn't it? 
So in your opinion, Ellie, what are some of the key trends and best practices in early careers marketing that are currently shaping the industry and how do you stay up to date with those? I think there's, and this kind of on the back of the, I guess, the social mobility conundrum that faces us all. I think there's a real opportunity to look at how we assess and select, particularly within early careers. I would say early careers is a really nice playing kind of playground for testing things. My, my other half of my world is mid-career campaigns, but I think early careers gives you that place to really test. And so what we've been looking at is how do we assess for, for values and behaviours over technical capability? How do we assess for actually someone's motivation, their interests, what is it that kind of gets them out of bed in the morning? How do we assess that over saying to them, do you know what, tell me how a gas turbine works. Tell me how about all of our different products and services. Because I can teach someone that, we, we can build that in. What we can't teach is the, the raw interest and passion and excitement or someone's ability to actually just have resilience and to keep going. So we've really looked at our assessment um, framework, our end-to-end process. And I think there's so much opportunity there for other employers um, within early careers to kind of test some of this thinking and to kind of play around with how how we assess and how we select to move away from kind of traditional traditional assessment methods. I was reading a, an article a couple of weeks ago by the Sutton Trust that was kind of saying that over like 70% of students now have come out of the pandemic and they don't feel they have the right skills and behaviours their employees are looking for. Wow. So how do we kind of really try and get them to realise that they do. It's just about how they articulate and how they talk about it. And it, it might look different, but you know what? If you've had care and responsibilities during COVID, what a fantastic example that you can talk mm. about the yeah. skills that you've learned in that situation. Have you um, seen applications drop because of that? Not, not necessarily. I think what we've seen is the confidence in students who have applied. We've had to really work harder sometimes. Okay. Um yeah. And the pandemic kind of coincided with us kind of launching a new graduate program and kind of other things that were going on. So it gave us a bit of a platform to test some of these kind of theories of things that we wanted to do anyway. But all of a sudden you kind of had to go, we're going to have a cohort of students that haven't got any work experience because how would they have they got it? So we can't sift for that anymore. So actually, let's ask them, what is it that they learn about themselves during the pandemic? as part of our upfront sifting question rather than tell me about all the work experience that you've got because all of a sudden you're getting really very different answers and you're getting answers where you can learn so much more about students and you then all of a sudden get a very different student base that then starts to pass through your application process because you're not just sifting on the the young people that have done Duke of Edinburgh and brownies and, and all of that kind of great stuff which is still really valuable but actually what we want is that diversity across the applications. Have you moved back to in-person assessments or is it all still online and virtual? A mixture. So we run some of our programmes, we run as um, virtual assessment centres, half day, virtual, and then some of them we run face-to-face. We found that actually, particularly in the apprentice space, helping these students come on site and have given them the confidence to come on site and meet people is really helpful, I think, in a world where they've done quite a lot of stuff virtual and have this kind of virtual fatigue. So what channels are you using to attract people into their early careers roles? A mixture, I guess. Um, I don't think you can have a fully virtual career strategy. I don't think you can have a fully face-to-face early career strategy. I think it's really interesting that this generation will go onto TikTok and they will search for something on TikTok before they will now Google it which is like shocking, I guess, to me. But we're having to really kind of think, 
how do we position ourselves on the channels that they're, they're on? Yeah. So continuing really strong schools engagement, really strong university engagement, really strong partnerships with, with some brilliant kind of specialising diversity and inclusion um, organisations. But actually, how do we create really authentic kind of user-generated content that we can use through social media platforms? How do we engage with them at times of the day that are much more kind of suited to mm-hmm. them? So do you know what? If, if we want to, we want to pop up in their, their feed while they're kind of doing all their other stuff and they can engage with us that way rather than thinking, right, now's the time I think about early careers or now's the time I think about an apprenticeship. How do we kind of become part of their day-to-day um, social media searching, conversation, whatever, whatever that might look like? And when they're searching on TikTok, is it, do you think they're after user-generated content for people who've had those experiences or are they looking for content from employers to advertise roles to them? And this is the hard part, is getting that balance. The Rolls-Royce is an organisation that's steeped in history and a lot of people want to work for Rolls-Royce because they're proud of that history and they want to be part of, of what we were and where we're going um and our products and and what we do as an organization so there's a there's a level of how do we we sell that how do we talk about that but this next generation they're not stupid and they can see through corporate jargon they can see through the we've we've written this in a really nice kind of corporate crumbs branded tone of voice language and what they want to see is an apprentice that's a bit like them going do you know what this is what i did today and now here i am at the gym and here's now me and my mates having some pizza on a friday night they want to see that kind of content they want to see them Mm. going this is the uniform that i wear that stuff's really important to them probably much more important than us talking about this amazing big new strategic thing that's happening over here they want to they want to see that authentic content from people that they can relate to uh, about the things that are really important to them i suppose it's it's doing that while still maintaining your own brand isn't it and that's that's the thing that i suppose marketing departments and hr departments wrestle with really so with that in mind um and without giving away obviously all your own secret sauce what advice would you give to companies who are looking to improve their early careers recruitment marketing efforts and and also as an addition to that what are some of the common mistakes that you see organizations make in this area i think there's probably the two bits for me um i probably say the word authentic way too much <laughs> my team will laugh at me but i've never heard that do, before yeah <laughs> everything we do has to feel authentic it has to feel personalized it has to feel like each candidate is individual in a world where everything is so automated I think we've got to get better at making those individuals feel like they are an individual and that you care about them as an individual. And it's not that they're just kind of a number in a in a massive recruitment process, which I completely understand is very difficult. And when you've got a sift volumes and when you've got lots of roles in lots of locations, it's that balance. So I think as tech becomes so much more important and as we use tech and AI throughout our recruitment and kind of marketing approaches how do we not lose that authentic communication how do we not lose that kind of personalization um i think the other bit for me is far too often we throw all of our time and attention and our money at the upfront part of a process the marketing part the creative part the how we get them to apply part which is is super important what we then don't think about is what they have once they apply what does that part of the journey look like and then even more importantly once they've got that offer what does that part of the journey look like because yeah. Quite often we're, we can offer candidates nine to 10 months in advance before they join. And so how do we continue that authentic engagement? How do we continue the support that they might require? Um, you find that, again, with quite a lot of diverse candidates, they might have very different backgrounds and might have very different situations. So how do you kind of get to know them as part of that process and continue that support within the onboarding 
journey. The, the really kind of slightly funny example I use is that we had quite a high volume apprentices who had no idea what their account number or their sort code were. So they joined on day one and they weren't going to get paid because they hadn't realized <laughs> they needed to tell us yeah. that information. And then when we asked for it, they didn't know what it was. And you kind of think, oh gosh, yeah, if they're 16, 17 years old, some of them might not even have a bank account, depending on the background or the support that they've got at home. So how do we, you keep that momentum going? How do you invest and really look at what that journey looks like from the point they apply right to the point they join or their induction or whatever? It's funny you say that, actually, because I had to get my son to sign a passport recently. And, and he, he basically said, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, you need to sign it. He's like, well, I don't have a, I don't have a signature. <laughs> like, well, what do you mean you have a signature? It's like, well whenever ever needed to to sign anything it's interesting you were saying about that process and my older son is currently sort of in the in the market for um for graduate schemes and he's applied to quite a few he's got a degree in maths and i kind of actually i naively thought oh you know degree in maths absolutely everyone will be all over you sort of thing and he's applied to quite a few different places and and gone through various different tests and stuff which he said was right quite fascinating the different recruitment processes are really interesting but there seems to have been a massive now hiatus between great we're processing your application and you're through to the next stage and then a gap of of like nothing just this this void which surprised me really because i i think you know here's so much about candidate experience and all of these things so is that something that you're familiar with or or aware of or is he maybe just um not as good as i thought he was <laughs> um, yeah it's do you know what it's a really fine balance different people different organizations recruit in different ways some batch recruit so they do an initial sift and then all of a sudden they'll they'll wait till they've got a certain batch mm. of candidates and then they assess some will literally just churn through assessment centers some do a first bit and then they wait till they close. And if they don't use plan September, they don't close till March. You could be sitting there and then all of a sudden you can hear something back. So there's, there's so many different ways that, um, and there isn't one perfect way, sadly, of how we kind of approach early careers recruitment. But I think to your point and what we've seen even more, particularly as you go through the pandemic and there's sometimes ambiguity over where roles are going to be placed and when people are going to start and, and what the structure of early careers might look like, the more you can communicate with the candidate, even if it's a, Thank you for applying. We're sorry we've not been in touch. Here's mm. a link to our organization's podcast. We'll tell you about this. We still really value your application. The more that you can just keep that message going, the more candidates still feel like they're part of a, a process. Um, because we all know we, we recruit for early careers through quite a long period sometimes. Yeah. Um, you get you go live in September and sometimes you're not running assessment centers till December, January, which feels like absolutely no time to an early careers professional. Um, but for a candidate, if it's their dream job, it feels quite sometimes like a lengthy mm. process and a process they don't know or they don't understand. So again, the more transparent we can be about where they are and what they're doing just helps them. It is that, I'll come back to it, that authentic level of communication and transparency is what we need more of. And I guess you're going to have, as an organisation, the competitive advantage if you're going to be doing that because, you know, they're going to be applying, aren't they, yeah. to a number of different schemes. So if you're the organisation that's keeping in contact with them and keeping them reassured, then they're going to be more favourable of your brand than others that aren't doing that. Yeah, absolutely. We say that now I think it's the, the top candidates that you see will, on average, get three offers for graduate schemes. Mm. And so you think if you're competing with those three companies, quite often it's not necessarily competing now in the same sectors. Yes, we're an we're engineering technology organisation, but we run business graduate programmes, so we could be competing with some very different organisations. How do you sell yourself? Because you 
because like I say, you don't stop selling yourself at the point of the point they apply. Yeah. And um, really, you've got to keep that going right up until the point that they join you because you don't want declines, you don't want dropouts, you don't want them to feel like you've not cared about them in yeah. part, part of that yeah, process. I, I, I to, and I think that for coming back to your sort of original social mobility point, I think there's a bit of that too because I, I think if you've left university, you've had to sort of fund yourself, you've, you're going to be looking for a job. There's a very real chance that if there's a very long delay, you're just, you, need, you might need money, you'll find any job. And that could really, you know, you could just find yourself then in a job that you didn't really want to do kind of your confidence is eroded and before you know it you're, you're kind of you're not really doing the thing that you'd set your heart on yeah, yeah absolutely so ellie finally what do you see as the future of early careers and how do you think the industry will continue to evolve in the years to come i think there's loads of things here i could i think i could talk about the, the value of apprenticeships and how we've just got to keep driving that i think that's a really a really successful way forward for so many students and i really want to see more employers investing in apprenticeships and doing more around apprenticeships i think the real challenge or and debate that we face at the moment is kind of this this bit around technology and ai there is from even from when i applied for grad schemes and when i started out my career the technology that is now available from an attraction perspective from a recruitment perspective is massive and it's how do we use that and how do we use that to a way that's going to be really successful and to our advantage and enhance the candidate experience without taking away the human interaction, the personalization? Yeah. <laughs> and how do we manage things like, I was on a call the other week talking about chat GBT. How do we manage this real kind of like, actually there's technology out there that candidates could be using to mm. enhance who they are or to write their CVs for them. And how do we balance that? How do we kind of say, actually, we're going to be really authentic and we want you to be really authentic, but we've used technology in a really strategic way to enhance your experience um, and not take humans out of it or not do it just because it speeds up a bit of the process for us and actually doesn't have much of a kind of an impact on that 16, 17 year old. And, I think this is where we're going to see talent communities becoming so much more important, looking at how we message, how do we engage, how do we support. But yeah, I think there's this real kind of balancing act at the moment of there's so many cool kind of tech stacks out there for TA professionals to understand and use. Um, how do we use it in a really strategic and really successful way with that kind of candidate experience piece yeah. kind of running underneath it? No, that's, that's actually a good point. And it, funny enough, I mean, uh, we'll direct you uh, towards one of our other podcasts, which really touches on this exact same thing about how do you balance the technology efficiency with the human element. And I, I, funny enough, I hadn't really considered about the uh, people enhancing their applications through ChatGPT and things like that. So, yeah, really interesting thing. So finally, final question we ask all of our guests, Ellie, is what are your top reads or listens? I had to think about this one. So I'm glad you gave me pre-warning to it. <laughs> what do you mean? That was a spontaneous yeah. question. It's not so spontaneous uh, enough to cop. Yeah, you're allowing like, people to peep well, I've been curtain. sitting here telling you about like something yeah. I'd watch on Netflix, I think. We, we don't so, let anyone know that we prepared because because it doesn't look like we have. It's so, not authentic yeah. enough. <laughs> very this is a very authentic conversation <laughs> so yeah i think there's, there's two um i'm not a big podcast listener i struggle to listen to podcasts actually but yeah there's two books that i've been dipping in and out of recently one really personal kind of plug i'm dyslexic for those that have heard me speak about other topics in neurodiversity and i've been dipping out of a book by the charity made by dyslexia um, and kate Griggs, which is called this is dyslexia and it is a really powerful book around the role of neurodiversity 
is going to play in our society as a whole. But actually, for anyone who's neurodiverse and anyone who's dyslexic, it's a real kind of comfort read of really being able to kind of understand some of your strengths and where they're going to play within society and some of the stuff that's kind of going on. So that's a really good read. And the other one. That's a great one. Sorry. That's a great one. My my son is um, dyslexic. So I'm definitely going to read. Yeah. Yeah. And for a dyslexic who really struggles with reading and anything like that it's written in a way that is yeah it's just brilliant to kind of pick up and and pull out pieces from both a personal perspective but actually also from a workplace perspective Mm. of neurodiversity in the workplace and the role that dyslexia is going to play so yeah I can really recommend that and then um I've also just been looking at bits in the social mobility and social mobility and its enemies um book which is technically a university text which is used at a couple of different universities around social mobility but it's a really interesting read around how social mobility is not it's a typical diversity kind of trait and yeah. characteristic and i found it really interesting looking at actually people can move in and out of boxes of social mobility and how do we have kind of upward social mobility but also downward social mobility and the challenges that plays in organizations how do we measure it it's not like trying to measure gender um you're not it or not it um so yeah there's a lot of kind of really interesting discussion in that in mm. that book for anyone that wants to learn more about kind of why i think social mobility is the biggest challenge that's facing us at the moment that is really yeah yeah, that is really fascinating and and on just picking up on that last point i think the reason that's so interesting is that we often talk about how we have received briefs where it says oh make sure you include some element of diversity and 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 by that you know it's very much they mean visible diversity but when you're talking about social mobility it's not something that is easy is readily represented is it so yeah yeah, it sounds like a really interesting read yeah excellent well thanks ellie so much for your time that's okay. Thank you for having me. Very welcome. Brilliant. Thanks for listening. For more expert insights, check out our other bite-sized episodes, perfect for micro learners and those with a short attention span, just like me. And if you're in employer branding and recruitment marketing, you might be interested in our monthly EB meetups. Just search EB meetup on LinkedIn and join our community. For anything else, contact us via leapcreate.co.uk. See you next time.